Welcome everyone to episode 18 of the Walls Within podcast. Joining us today is former professional goaltender Matt Zaba. Tune in to find out how a late start in goaltending may have created one of the most non-traditional goalie coaches working today. His unorthodox view of the position and how goalies may benefit more from less coaching. Matt shares candidly on stories dating back to his junior hockey days and moments throughout his career that brought a tear to all of us. Join us to hear the emotional tale of one goalie's journey from small town York and Saskatchewan to the bright lights of New York City. Hear all about the chip, Max Mono, Chris Drury's leadership, and finding his love for the game again in Europe. Matt is currently the goalie coach for the Tri-City Storm of the USHL, while also running his goalie training center in Denver, Colorado, where he continues to give back to youth goalies across the front range. Matt, excited to have you here. Uh, obviously, we've got a pretty pretty long history going back to our playing days at CC. I don't think we would have crossed paths playing youth hockey at all, but um, you know, you certainly had an extended professional career, and and now you're in the goalie training business. And I'm trying to help out as much as I can on that front. But you're down in Denver grinding away, Matt. Why don't we jump? into kind of your hockey story and, and we'll get into some of the things that you went through in your professional career. Um, some really interesting stories and just kind of this winding tale that um, I think people are going to get a lot out of today. So we'll, we'll kick it over to you and kind of just tell us how you got into goaltending. Tell us kind of briefly about your, your youth hockey career and maybe leading up to going to Colorado college where we met and then um, a little bit of your professional career. Yeah, so I probably would have started goal um, a little bit later. I was usually playing as a forward or defenseman until I was 11. When I was 12, I switched to goal full-time. Probably more so my father's decision than one that I was actually, like, really super excited about. Um, Just from a very small town, we only had one goalie. He would leave every year to go to a goalie school. So my dad was the coach, which meant I was going in net. The first time I did it, I think I would have been 11, maybe 12, or no, sorry, 10 or 11. Um, We got smoked, played one game, didn't play the rest of the year. The next year, the same thing happened. Our goalie left for a goalie school. I played, did well. Um, Then I played the next game, played well again. Um, And then I just split that year playing goal and more so a defenseman. And then my second year peewee, I switched to goal full time. Um, so I played all my minor hockey basically in Yorkton, Saskatchewan before going to juniors in the BCHL with Vernon Vipers. And then, yeah, that's how I ended up at Colorado college with yourself. That's kind of wild. Like that peewee sounds like a, a late time to start as a goalie. I think personally I was probably around eight or nine, um, my love affair with it was just the gear in itself. They were starting to kind of get a little color yep. in the pads, right? And everything went from that brown and black. And I had this vibrant orange down the side of my pads. I think it was a set of Cooper pads. And I had the photo and it's, you know, the little Tim Bits jersey on it. Everybody was sponsored by Tim Hortons back then in Canada, at least the youth hockey. So I fell in love with it. It sounds like you were kind of forced into it and by default, you just kind of yeah. stuck with it because yeah, I you think, played well um, or your dad just needed a goalie and he's like, Hey, you're doing did, good. I like, I like winning. Did so, you yeah. have any of those, those feelings of like looking at the gear as a kid prior to like um, 11 I, or 12? Like, I always played goal playing like street hockey okay. or in the basement. Like it wasn't like I didn't like the position. Yeah. I, I did. 
Um, I honestly think my dad like looked at me and I think he looked <laughs> at his side of the family and was like, this kid's going to be tall, skinny. He's not aggressive. And like when we were growing up, the game was physical. It was like yeah. big guys, big yeah. hits, fighting. Like, I think he saw that and nudged me towards gold just because of my makeup, to be honest with you. Um, That's awesome. I, I love how you're doing so yeah, I mean, I the future. It, I, I was it. just going to say, is he, is he that much of a, of a fortune teller with, uh, with players' attributes? I, it's awesome. I truly look back at it now because, like, I mean, I would have been a decent defenseman. I was always a good skater. Um, but I do remember one time my dad was out of town and it was the year I was kind of switching off between playing goal and playing D. And I purposely brought my player stuff because my mom dropped me off. And he came to the game later on and he was furious. Oh, yeah, he was. He's like, where's your goalie stuff? I was like, well, I want to play D today. He's like, you're not playing D, you're playing goalie. I was like, well, no, like I wanted to play D today. And, uh, I think he literally, yeah, I think he saw it and was like, you know what, if this kid's going to keep playing, he's probably going to have to be a goalie. Like if he was advancing, I do think it was one of those, I don't want to say a career decision, but like to extend my playing, I think he saw that that's where I'd be the best fit. Interesting. So, and, but he never forced me to do it. I think it was just like kind of nudging towards it. Were you, was it all, were you all self-taught or were you going to goalie schools? Like, I would I mean, say I had a street hockey game into the, into the, yeah, and this would kind of like lead into our business now, but I remember being in the sports store when I was 12 and we we're talking to the guy who owns extreme hockey in Regina, Saskatchewan. He was from the same small town I was. And he was telling me about this guy, Craig Lombard, and he had opened this goalie training facility in Regina, Saskatchewan. And it was the exact same setup we currently have in Denver right now with center ice, which is wild a little bit. And he was telling my dad about it and I was just kind of there, but I remember the conversation and I bet you two weeks later, I was in Craig's shop working with him and Craig would have been my first goalie coach um, when I was 12. Um, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have skated with a, like a private coach regularly. It would have been maybe, I don't know, once a month because it was a two hour drive. So I'd go in and see Craig. Um, but I would say for the most part, pretty self-taught until we had Terry Kleisinger at Colorado college. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, I actually think that probably helped me in a lot of ways, just like being a student of the game, figuring things out, trying new things. Um, but yeah, there wouldn't have really been any formal coaching probably until I turned pro. And that's such like um, one of those things is so underrated. And you and I have talked about it at length is just the problem solving side of learning a sport. Right. And it's all just kind of testing things out. And it seems nowadays in any youth sport that we're just giving the answer or giving a, a solution to every single question that a kid has. And, you know, we're, it's tough not to, they all seem to want the answer, but at the end of the day, it's like, Hey, uh, at the same point, it's like, I can guide you a little bit, but you're going to have to figure this out on your own. It's a skill that you're going to need to develop and it's going to come in handy, not only on the ice in terms of your goaltending journey, but in a lot of other aspects as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting, Zabs, that, you know, we talk about the mental aspects of stuff and the common thread of talking to some of the goalies that we've had Corey Hirsch, Montoya, yourself, 
is that none of these guys ever really got formal, some of them not even really formal technical goalie training, let alone the mental stuff. And it leads me to this kind of open-ended rhetorical question. You know, back in the day when we were, when we were building a goalie in the, in the seventies or eighties, were goalies born or were goalies made? And I sort of feel like goalies used to be born, like their personalities, their skills, the things that they could, they could process and their way of handling some of the setbacks was kind of built into who they were as people from their parents, from their upbringing, whatever. Now I sort of feel like we've, we've, we still harness that with our youth and our youngsters, but we can also make a goalie. Like we can give them some of these skills and some of these handling setback stuff that they may not have been born with and, and create a goalie that's, that's resilient, that can, that can let in a goal and bounce back and things like that. And so it's interesting. All the, all the old guy goalies, I feel like they're all born, but now I feel like we can kind of make one. I don't know. What do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, uh, I think especially now when I'm evaluating goalies in the USHL or, or even looking at guys that are playing in the NHL, I actually think teaching the position as far as the technical piece is the easiest side to oh, teach. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. can give any goalie the technique as far as, Hey, how you teeth push, how you butterfly, how you make a save. And you see that with a lot of the kids now, like coming up, a lot of the goalies look exactly the same, right? There's nothing special about them, but what you can't give them is that natural athletic ability. So I think in a lot of ways, we almost do it backwards as a coaching community where we take these kids and it's the instant gratification thing, right? What's the first thing when a goalie comes in that you can do to make them better? Well, you give them a little technique and all of a sudden the parents see it. They're like, wow, he's moving better. He looks better. He's in position. He's like, maybe he isn't getting scored on as much because of that. But what aren't you giving them? You aren't giving them that pure, raw athletic ability that they're going to eventually need if they want to have an extended career. So in some ways, we almost do it backwards as a goalie coaching community where we over-technicalize, is that even a word, the younger kids. And we take all the athleticism out of it when we probably just want to be like, hey, let's make you the most freakishly gifted athlete possible. And then when that happens, then we're going to add all the technical pieces. And that's probably how you end up with an Andre Vasilevsky or a Shesterkin or some of these freaks you're seeing in the NHL. So you take your pool of goalie candidates. And you don't even uh, you don't even put them on the ice. You have them do a bunch of random athletic testing, and you find your best athletes. It may yeah. not be the kid that's most technically sound. No, who cares? Who cares if it looks the best at that point? That doesn't yeah. matter. That is like, for me, that's an extremely short term way of viewing it. Pretty but it's bad. also the way everyone's being evaluated nowadays. The first thing someone says when they're evaluating goalies at minor hockey or even the USHL or whatever is the first thing that comes out of everyone's mouth is like, wow, he's technically really good. Okay. Well, who cares if he's technically really good right now? Like, is that going to help him when he's 18, 19 years old? Like I asked, um, interesting. Super interesting. I actually remember going to LA Kings, uh, development camp when I was in, um, when I was in school and I probably would have been the least formally trained goalie there. And 
coincidentally, probably two years ago, I did an interview for a goalie scout job and I was talking with Bill Ranford about it. And we we're just kind of chatting about like what I would have looked like at that camp. And they like Bill wanted nothing to do with me. But three years later, I'm in the NHL playing a little bit and on the bench. So it's like, why is that? Like why? And I think he brought up this question that always stands out to me a little bit now is like, what are you comfortable coaching? And I think it's every, everyone's answer is like, well, I can coach. Anyone can coach the technique of it. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty standardized. I would say right now, as far as how goalies move. So what's the ultimate separator? Who's the best athlete? Yeah. So yeah. it's it's a very interesting thing for me, um, especially when I look back at my path as far as like, well, how was I even supposed to make it? I had no coaching growing up. Well, maybe that was a really good thing. Maybe that was an advantage. So I don't know. There's a whole there's a whole thing of this that as you kind of dive into get into more coaching and you see more kids that come through. Um, yeah, it's it's kind so, of. So it's, let's analyze the the teenager or the twenty year old Matt Zaba. I'm going to make you talk about yourself. What was yeah. the, what was the what was the difference? So I right. mean, was it your me, athleticism and your head game or what? Um, I think for me, like if I look at my upbringing, I played all sorts of sports. Yeah. I played volleyball, baseball, badminton, tennis. Um, I played hockey in the winter and then played again from basically March through September, um, which nowadays would be like, you're crazy. Yeah. But I did all these other things. I golfed, um, basketball. We were just like overall very athletic kids. Like my, yeah. all of my friends did the same thing. And that's just what we did growing up. We had nothing else to do besides go play sports. Um, so I think when you kind of, I mean, was it formal goalie training in the sense that I'm in the crease in my pads? No, but it's athletic training. Yeah, you bet. So now I'm learning different skill sets. I'm learning how to problem solve. I'm learning how to track anything. Maybe it's not a puck, but I'm learning how to track things, whether that's hitting a golf ball or a, a tennis ball, whatever it might be. Um, so there are those skill sets that translate to the position. It just doesn't look like it doesn't look like goalie training, but it is because it's helping you be more athletic. And that's the problem with the parents. And I say this all the time to some of the parents is they're like, Hey, we're, we need to have a really good summer. What's the best thing we could do. It's like, go do gymnastics. And they're like, look at you. Like what? It's like, but that's not on the ice. It's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like you go have an unbelievable summer in the gym you will come back as a better goalie. And they're like, no, that, no, we need to be on the ice. It's like, no, you actually don't. You need to be in the gym working on your strength, your athleticism, all this stuff. How many, how and, many times do they ignore you and not listen to you? Oh, they don't listen to me at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, that's the biggest difference right now is we almost like get into, it's like, if it's not on the ice, it's not goalie specific. That's crazy. And yeah, I think it's great too, is those, um, uh, those obstacle courses, I think the, yeah. the, like the, or the free play, like up here in steamboat, there's every Friday night for the middle schoolers, there's a free play at the gymnastic gym. So the kids can just go run around there and do whatever the heck they want to feel like. Yeah. Be as creative as they want to be. Right. But at the same time, it's like, 
they're training so much that they're not even aware of it. Exactly. And the translation, like they're becoming more athletic. They're becoming more like in tune with their body. And it's such an underrated thing to develop. Yep. For sure. And I look at my sons playing multiple sports. Jonathan does Taekwondo and I watch what it does to his confidence and I watch what it does to his processing of instruction and his ability to take coaching and, and not have all these paradigms and walls built up of this one thing like hockey, but he's kind of getting this diversification and, and everything I've read is that's the best thing you can do with kids. And it's the, it's the paint the house, sand the floor mindset, right? Like don't ask why just do these other things too. And it's going to help you. It's going to help whatever it is you want to stovepipe into later. Yeah. So let's, let's look at, start looking into college because I think, I mean, the fact that you're starting more or less to become a full-time goalie at the peewee age and your career progression moves along pretty quick. You're out playing junior hockey in the BCHL, great junior league. Um, you decide to go to CC. I don't know how many offers you would have had coming out of junior there, but CC at the time was a, a great school. We had a great program. And so I think for the first time, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, like you're reaching that level of hockey where all of a sudden it's starting to turn into a business. It's starting to get very competitive. You know, the the line between having success and failing at that level becomes very fine. And is, is college the first time you kind of start running into things where it's like, oh, I've never had to deal with this issue before. I've never had to deal with the mental side of the game where there's obstacles now in my way that I haven't encountered. Like run us through that kind of progression where you and I kind of meet and then start competing against each other. And we'll take that into kind of professional hockey, which has its own host of issues that you have to deal with that are completely different from college as well. Yeah. I mean, CC for me was, I mean, that was a great experience, but I'm going to back it up a little bit to juniors because I was actually traded in juniors. So after my first year, um, and I think juniors probably set the table for me a little bit as far as like deciding I actually wanted to do this. I had a terrible year my first year after having an unbelievable year, uh, my last year midget. Um, I was pretty heavily recruited to the different junior leagues, but I went to the Penticton Panthers and um, just had an awful experience, hated it, was backing up the whole year, coach and I didn't necessarily get along. It was my first year away from home. It was just a struggle. Had an awful year, probably the exact opposite of how I thought it was going to go. Um, and I remember that summer talking to my dad. I was like, I can't go back. I can't go back there. So I asked for a trade um, pretty much right after the season. Um, called the coach. He's like, yeah, we'll move you. No problem. And then it was probably a month before training camp. He called me and he's like, we're not trading you. We want you to come back. And I was like, Oh my God, really? After all this. And he's like, yeah, we want you back. I'm not trading you. Like I need you to come back. So I was like, I wrapped my head around. I was like, all right, this guy wants me. Maybe this is a good thing. So I go back to camp and I have an awesome camp and I'm waiting for the exit meetings. And I'm the last one. And there's a goalie before me and I can hear the whole conversation through the coaching door. And I'm sitting outside the door and I vividly remember hearing this. And the coach is like, I can't remember the other goalie's name. He's like, Hey, just so you know, we're trading Zaba. 
you're on the team. <laughs> oh, wow. And my mouth literally dropped and I was like fuming. They don't know that I heard this. So I walk in, I sit down and I'm just like almost in tears, mm-hmm. like at the point, like I can't hold it in. Oh, and he's telling me how camp's going. He's like, Hey, you've been great. All this stuff. And I was like, look, man, I hold the hurt. I heard the whole conversation through the door. You told him? I told him. I was like, I heard the whole conversation through the door. I was like, why wouldn't you trade me when I asked for the summer? Like, why would you make me come back, go through all this stuff, move back into my billets, get my head wrapped around this whole junior thing of being here and now move me? I was like, and um, he didn't have anything to say. He's like, well, and I was like, no, man, it's good. And I just like, I left. And yeah, he called me the next day. He's like, Hey, where do you want to be moved? I was like, yeah, just get me out of here. Like, I can't do this. And I'd like to stay in the league. So probably two weeks later, I was traded to Vernon. And that was kind of like the decision where I was like, chip on my shoulder, let's go. And had an awesome year. We ended up winning the league championship, league MVP, Knocked those guys wow. out of the playoffs and swept them. Looks and like he I played think, almost every game for him. 44 games, yeah. according to HockeyDB. Is that right? Oh, yeah. But that was kind of like the moment where I was like, I got hard to the whole business and competitiveness and deciding like, hey, I really want to do this. So I love that. that was just like a wild that. experience. I like to hear that through the door. Did, did it? Did, was the fire smoldering already because of your experience at, at up there at the Panthers or was um, it, or was it I that would, culminating moment that caused you? I to would just say snap? that was probably my moment where I was like, all right, like <laughs> this is it. Yeah. You know, like you don't do that to people type stuff. Um, so I was just like, yeah, this is it. Like I'm going like, that was my motivation for the whole year. Cause they were our oh, big yeah. division rivals too. Awesome. Like they traded me and this is how bad that coach thought I was too was he traded me to the division rival that was like two hours away because he thought I sucked. And that was another moment to me. I was like, dude, you're trading me. It'd be like trading Vasilevsky to Florida Panthers. You know what I mean? You You just don't do it. You know what I mean? So I'm like, wow, this guy really thinks I'm bad. If he's willing to trade me literally up the street to the division rival, I was like, oh, oh boy. Did you strike him that next season? Oh yeah, we crushed him. We crushed him. So it was like, that was probably the moment for me that just like really motivated me to do it. I think it just made, that was like the mental toughness piece that came in because it was a decision whether it was either going to go one or two ways, right? I was either going to use it as motivation or it was going to kind of crush me. And that was probably the end of it. So I, I would imagine that this is kind of a reoccurring theme. And I think all of us that play professional sports for that matter, will run into instances exactly like that and like you said you're you're responding responding to it one of two ways one you're saying forget that i'm gonna go and bury this guy right now or i'm just gonna walk away and with my tail between my legs yeah and what about cc you get there you're kind of coming off this pretty high note in junior hockey league coming in um i had pretty much been predominantly uh I think was I no that second year I'd had quite a few games played so I I was kind of coming in there to my junior year expecting that I was just going to run away with it and you were just going to help carry my sticks around like yep. that was that was my mindset and I got a rude awakening that season one because I don't know what your expectations coming in were and you can kind of speak on that but 
my thought process was I'm going to follow up the year that I had just had. And then all of a sudden I had to deal with a little bit of adversity. I, I got mono that year and you grabbed the net and just ran with it. And I was sitting there having to watch on the sidelines. And I remember sitting in the stands at the world arena once I was allowed to come out of my bedroom (laughs) (laughs) and, and just watching practice and fuming. And I'm like, man, he's just crushing it. Every game he goes in there, he's playing well, he's playing rock solid. Obviously you came in a, a, a little bit older, but you know, you came in and you, you made an impact right away. And for me personally, it was, it was tough to watch, you know, and it's, it's one of those things like coming back, I wanted to have a, a good year, but once I recovered from mono, I was still kind of struggling a little bit and you took the reins and kind of ran with it. Yeah. I mean, that was a, I mean, that was a wild year for sure. I think for me, like I never had any expectations coming into that year and playing, um, like Scott Owens, our coach and Norm, like they never promised me anything game time wise. I think for me, the thing with CC and there was, I was talking to a couple other schools and probably a lot of, um, like if there would have been agents or advisors back then, they probably would advise me not to go there. But I think for me with Norm, he started talking to me in my second year midget that summer before I went to juniors and had my bad year. So he had developed this like rapport with me and probably my family a little bit where I was like, wow, these guys stuck with me and kept talking to me after everything I've been through. Like, yeah, I need to go there. That's like, that's my home. So it was never like a place where I was like, oh, Curtis is there. I'm going to come in and steal his job or anything like that. It was just like, hey, I'm just going to come in my like eyes wide open, whatever opportunity I get, I'm just going to play. I'm going to play well. Like I never really thought about playing like pro after, to be honest, like that wasn't necessarily something like I was like a goal. It was like, Oh, I'm going to be in the NHL within two years or whatever like that. It's like, Hey, this yeah. is where I'm going to be for the next four years is kind of how I always thought about it. So there wasn't really like expectation where it's like, Hey, I need to come in steal max job and play like 30 games and do all this stuff. It's like, Hey, if I get an opportunity to play, this is going to be great. I'm probably going to be on spot duty, um, which is fine. And then we'll just kind of roll with it and, and see what happens. Um, Cause yeah, I would say probably the first couple months, I mean, I might've played two or three games maybe. And those would have been all some of the weaker teams, which is completely fine when you're a first year guy. Um, but then, yeah, when you got mono, I remember Scott called me. He's like, Hey, Curtis has mono, like you're going to be playing and you're going to have to play a lot. I was like, it was almost like a uh-oh type moment where I was like, this is like sink or swim, swim time, not only for myself, but like, Hey, we got to keep the team afloat until he's back. Um, and then, yeah, I think things just kind of, I got some confidence early, um, with some success and it just kind of steamrolled, you know, like the momentum just kind of built. Um, but I don't think it was for me, it wasn't anything like, Oh yeah, this is my team now or anything like that. It was just more, more survival mode a little bit than anything. Um, and yeah, it ended up being a great year for myself personally. Um, after that, which thank you to mono, I probably wouldn't have played at all. <laughs> yeah. It, it's such an interesting thing. Were you drafted out of junior hockey or did you get drafted after that year? At um, so I would have been drafted out of, uh, the BCHL that year. 
Um, okay. LA was the only team that talked to me. And I, I remember the scout calling my house and it would have been like an informal interview. And he's like, so where do you think you're going to get drafted? And I just kind of laughed and he's like, he's like, or are you just happy to be drafted? I was like, yeah, that's pretty much it. I was like, you guys are the only ones that have called. And, uh, and yeah, they ended up taking me later on, which if you look at kind of the King's track record with their management and, and everything around those times, they were always drafting kids out of junior A late goalies anyway because i think they're like hey we're just going to take some flyers on some kids in the later rounds they're going to college they'll have four years to develop um we'll see what happens and that's just i feel like that's what my story was it was more like hey this kid had a good year he's going to school we got four years to sit on him see what happens and if he turns out great if he doesn't it's an eighth round pick you know what does it really matter um yeah, it's always the the hard one is to kind of predict how goalies will develop. You know, they're like you said, there's so many intangibles to it, and then the mental side of having to kind of overcome certain things, whether that be getting sick, whether you know you gave up seven, eight goals in a game. Like, how do you how do you respond to all those different scenarios? And so it's really tricky, and I think that's the the luxury that some teams have, especially with drafting college goalies. I think it's a little different now because those guys have the ability to force um, organizations hands at some point during their college career, but European picks are the same way. You know, it's like, why would you ever draft a North American goalie unless you were very sure or you were taking a high round pick because you're like, this kid's going to be a stud. I got a Marcande Fleury on my hands. Yeah. We need to use a top pick for it. But other than that, the Europeans and college goalies to that extent, you can allow them to develop. And you can kind of just sit on them and see what happens. And, and they're doing it on somebody else's dime. And you, and yeah, you like you exactly. said, you haven't invested an early round pick. Yeah. So, all right. It's, so, it's super interesting. Drafted by the Kings. You don't end up signing with the Kings, right? Or did you sign yeah, with the no. Kings? No. Okay. And then you, you wrap up with CC. Pretty solid career there. Um, you turn professional. What is the what does the professional hockey world have to offer in those first couple of years, and what does that whole path look like? Yeah, so I mean that that was probably the biggest kick in the face. So after my um, my junior year, the Kings changed over all their management. So new GM, coaches, scouts, they cleaned house. So they wanted their own guys. They they didn't want anything to do with myself. Um, so after my senior year the Rangers offered me a contract. It was the only one that I was offered. Um, so I obviously took it and I would have been one of six goalies under NHL contract that year. So I think it was Lundqvist, Steve Valiquette, Al Montoya, who was there, would have been their um, really high pick. Um, and they had Chris Holt, who would have been an American kid and um, a Finnish kid, Mika Wickman. And yeah, I would have been number six on the depth chart going to the East Coast League. And I think that was the first year where I really learned the business of pro hockey because I went from NHL camp to AHL camp to East Coast League camp all before the season started. And it was just like, oh my gosh, like this is just a absolute grind. And I think being in the East coast league to start, like I never felt farther away from the NHL probably at any point in my life than being there. Just, it just seemed so far given 
everything that was happening. It was like, oh man, like this is, this is crazy. Um, and that year was really tough because there was a lot of injuries. So I wasn't really playing anywhere. I was just always traveling. I was up in Hartford, but I wasn't playing in Hartford. I was backing up. So I'd maybe like practice a couple days and then back up. Then I'd get sent down um, back to Charlotte and practice. But I wouldn't play there either because I'd get called right back up to go sit on the bench. So my game was in complete disarray. And the games I would go in, my confidence was so low because... I wasn't feeling good about myself or anything I was doing. I was like, I'm not playing anywhere. When I am playing, I'm just like struggling. Cause I, I didn't feel like I had a home anywhere and I couldn't like settle in. I was living out of a suitcase essentially. And I remember my mom called me um, the one time on the weekend we had a break and I was just venting to her, just everything like the season was struggling. And she's like, Hey Matt, you can just like, you don't have to do it after the year. It's fine. I was like, what? It's like, I'm not quitting. And that kind of lit a little bit of fire. But I think the biggest kick in the pants that I would have got is I got healthy scratched in the East Coast League that first year. And I remember calling my agent and I was like, hey, so like, I'm not even making the road trip today. And he's like, what do you mean you're not making the road trip? I was like, I'm not making the road trip. Like, I'm staying back. Like, <laughs> and he's like, this isn't good. So I ended up getting loaned to the team in Idaho, which is funny because I'm here right now. And that was the first time that year where I actually like could set my feet and like um, have a home for the year. I didn't get, get called up again. I was, pr I got to practice. I got to get into the routine. I felt a part of it and my game just like exploded and I ended up earning another contract after that which probably doesn't happen if I don't get loaned out. Um, but that was probably the most mentally taxing year as far as everything goes. Cause I was like, man, if this is what pro hockey is like, like, I don't know if I want to be a part of it as far as just the traveling, the moving, the uncertainty and everything. I was like, this is just the grind mentally. It had me under before I got loaned out to Idaho was just probably like nothing I've ever been before. Um, I still go to the airport in Hartford and it gives me anxiety that I'm going to get a call from the coach being like, Hey, we're sending you down. It's crazy. Like it's crazy that year, how, how mentally taxing it was. And nobody says anything to you either. Right? Like it's one of those things, at least in that the, the decisions are made and there's no explanation. There's no, yeah. no one's telling you, Hey, this, we're doing this for this purpose. You know, maybe they do that with your higher picks that you're kind of trying to groom a little bit and give them time to develop. But when you're you're sitting at the bottom of the depth chart, you're kind of like an afterthought. And so nobody's there explaining, saying, hey, you know what? You're going here for this reason. And here's what we'd like you to get out of this experience. Yeah. You know, and, is, it, and, is it out of the question or on call for that position to just ask for feedback and go, hey, what's going on? Why am I healthy scratched? Oh, I think you can kind of ask for feedback, but at the end of the day, like that was, this was always the hardest part about pro hockey that I actually didn't like is I didn't like, there was no human element in it. And I had a really hard time with that. Um, because yeah, they just, I mean, I don't want to say they don't care, 
but there's no emotion involved. It's literally like, Hey, can I get some feedback? I mean, I honestly would have felt better if they would just be like, Hey man, you're number six on the depth chart. We're sending you down because we have other guys that we value over you. So just go down there and play well and see what happens. But there's no, for me, there was never any clear, um, there was never any clear path laid out as far as, Hey, this is why we signed you. This is what we can think. Um, I think a lot of it is just like, it's a depth thing too, right? They're like, well, we need more goalies in the system in case someone gets hurt. So this guy had a good career. So let's just sign him. If something happens, great. You know what I mean? Um, where other guys, I mean, if you're a high pick, they're obviously investing in you. So, I mean, scouts jobs are on the line. They paid you money. So those guys are always going to get the benefit of the doubt because they don't want their organization to look bad. Yeah. Where if you're a free agent signing, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's interesting you know, too. But, like if I flip the script and I look at it from someone else's perspective that's involved in that world, if you're coaching, for example, I think you're just kind of treading water for the most part because the reality of sports is that is at least in hockey with an 82 game schedule at the NHL level, your game day off, game day off, game day off. And when you're in a results driven business that where you get an answer every other day, well, most people want the answer to be a win. Yeah. And so they're so concerned and focused on trying to achieve that objective that at times it's really difficult to kind of go and maybe explain to someone who's kind of like sitting at the bottom of that lineup or at the bottom of the organization, what the plan is, you know, yeah. because they're so focused on that and achieving that result that I, I think you just kind of lose sight of what's going on. And it's really hard to kind of put yourself in somebody else's shoes and really see it from their point of view. At the same point, I know for a number of kids, and this is kids that have been kind of bottom of the lineup on the NHL rosters, trying to figure their way through that journey. It goes so far when you explain to someone, be like, hey, we want you to develop right here, right now in this role. We see a bigger role for you maybe in the future, but you need to excel here and focus on doing this job well before we can kind of move you into a different position. But that, if you had that explanation, it might help those kids kind of understand what's taking place. Yeah, so, no, I, I think I would have absolutely loved that if I would have signed that first year, if anybody would have sat me down and like, yeah. all right, Matt, Here's where you're at. Here's how you are going to climb the ladder. And it's going to be out, up to you to play and play well to climb the ladder. But like, here's your path to where you probably want to go and where we could see you going. But it's literally just like, I felt it was like sink or swim. It was all on yeah. me. If I didn't play well, um, that was it. I was gone. Um, and I think too, it's such a lifestyle adjustment going from college to pro that first year where college, you have classes, it's regimented, your schedule's laid out from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, you have a routine where now you're in pro hockey, your routine is wake up, go to practice, and then that's it. So it's like, what are you doing with all this other time? And I found that very hard and it was almost like trying to find 
like the bigger purpose of what I'm playing for. Like when you, when I was at school, I felt like a very strong connection to the organization, like for the school. It's like, they gave me a scholarship. Like this is my home. Like I felt very indebted to them um, in a lot of ways or pro. It was just kind of like, all right, they're paying me, but like, I don't feel as invested into the Jersey based on, and, and a little bit is how you're treated. And I actually don't think they do a very good job of like making you like want to be all in on it. Um, so it's like this whole thing. It's like, I'm trying to figure out my new lifestyle, my new routine. I, and like, you're in this whole different culture where it's, well, this guy's trying to take my job. So I don't really want him to play that well. And I'm trying to climb the ladder. And it's not like this feeling of camaraderie that you probably had for the last four years when it's like, Hey, we're all in this together. Now it's like, well, I'm mad because that guy got called up instead of me, you know, like, how is this good? You know? So it's, you got this whole different dynamic going on. That's very cutthroat and it's hard to wrap your head around a little bit. I think to start. Or, or there, you know, one of the things I keep thinking about is not just in sport, but across the board in, in successful organizations. And obviously in my experience, I look at, fighter squadrons that are successful and fighter squadrons that aren't military units that are and aren't. And one of the common denominators is exactly what you talked about, what you got at Colorado college, which is that investment into the organization that that investment into something other than yourself. And that to me, what I, what comes out of here, leadership, right? I hear, you know, leadership of your time at Colorado college inspired you to work for that team for a goal for, for representing the Tigers. Yeah. Right? Do you find that in pro hockey there are teams that do that really good and lead their players to be all in, you know, and not just go to practice, but go to practice and then get private ice time and then do tons of off ice stuff. And then there are other teams that are just like, or is it a contingent upon your level in the organization and your depth, you know, which one of those are both, you know? Well, I think, I think, yeah, I think there's a big dynamic there. And Mac, you could probably speak more into this, but there is definitely a pecking order in the um amongst those nhl teams like i remember even being at training camp with the rangers and um this would have been after my second year so i worked my way up the depth chart from basically like the sixth goalie to the third goalie and it's just so funny how the locker room setups and stuff at training camp work and you kind of figure this out hey mac as you go along but year one I would have been dressing in pretty much the next building beside the rink, not even in the rink. The next year I'm in the locker room during training camp, right beside Lundquist. You know what I mean? So I'm like, Oh, they must be taking me a little more serious now. You know what I mean? Like I'm in a competition here, but even that I still remember going in and like riding the bike before one of the scrimmages and the strength coach coming up to me. And essentially trying to kick me off the bike and being like, Hey, we're going to need this for like some of the other guys. And I was like, what? I was like, no dude, like I'm on the ice with them, like right now with that group. And it was almost like, Oh, like, and at that moment I was like, yeah, this guy, they're not taking me that serious. But I think that piece from when you have a really strong organization, I think that is all leadership. And I think the great organizations have it. And I think the Mickey Mouse ones don't. And one of the reasons I do think the Rangers are going to be very successful um, 
is because of Chris Drury. I will never forget this. And this is the GM now, but he was the captain that year and he had just signed his monster ticket coming from the Buffalo Sabres. I remember walking into training camp that first year, my first year out of Colorado College. And I'm literally like just stretching on the floor, trying to mind my own business. I don't know anyone. And Chris Drury walks into the gym right over me and he's like, Zabs, what's up? How was your time at CC? So lucky to have you here. Never met the guy in my life. Never spoken a word to him. I'm like, oh, I'm like, holy shit. Chris Drury knows who I am. This is crazy. Phenomenal leaders do that kind of like, stuff. I was like, wow. And right away, I was like, this guy is like my all-time favorite person now. And to see him be in the JM, I'm like, oh, this guy's going to kill it. Because if you can care about a free agent signing who's literally going to be your sixth goalie in the East coast league. And you're doing that type of stuff. I was like, that's the guy I could get behind craziness, right? Like awesome. That's really cool. And I think one that speaks obviously why he was a captain in the NHL, why he was coveted. And now why he's the general manager of the New York Rangers, right? Is that things like that go a long ways. Obviously you have to be intelligent. You have to know what you're doing, but when you go the extra mile, and you can recruit people that want to run through a wall for you because they extended their hand a little bit to get to know you or say something to you, acknowledge you. Yeah. Those are the type of players that you want to fall behind. And yeah. those, yeah, those, those people are special. You know, Rod Brendamore was a guy that jumps out to me. Jerome McGinley was another guy who jumps out to me where they were individuals that it's like, you meet them and then it's like you have an instantaneous like just kind of affection for them where yeah man i'll run through that door if you need me to whatever you ask right like that's the type of people that you want to have kind of running the ship yeah because one they're going to set the example two they're going to acknowledge everyone in and around that organization and kind of go the extra mile and not just blow you off even if you are the sixth goalie in that organization so yeah that's really cool to hear yeah, crazy. I was that I'll never forget that moment because you've all met guys like where they say, like, don't meet your heroes or whatever it is. And there's guys I would have met going through it where I was like, wow, I watch this guy playing, uh, playing like my whole life. And you almost have this like picture of him in your head, what they should be like. And then you meet him and you're like, oh, I want nothing to do with that guy. You know what I mean? And it's kind of it's disappointing. So when it happens the other way, it's just like, wow you can see why he's won at every single level he's been at. And it's something so easy as just saying like, hello, or knowing their name and like making you feel like special, like, hey, wow, I actually like, I belong here. This is unbelievable. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just makes you feel so connected to that and what's going to happen right away. That's like, all right, I'm all in on this, you know, yeah. and that's whatever kind he's of the- doing, I'm, I'm right behind him. That's the secret sauce that every organization is looking for when they hit on that keyword of culture. You know, we're trying to develop a culture here and it it starts with individuals. And if you can kind of get those guys as your captain, as your general manager, your coach, it makes it so much easier for everyone else to want to buy in. You know, knowing that you're, at least in sports, when you're dealing with a world where it's like, hey, if you don't perform, odds are you're just you're going to be cut, traded, or waived, or whatever it may be. You know, they get rid of you at a moment's notice. So buying into something when you you know that 
that other side of it is kind of looming over you is is critical and it's so so important to have so when you do find players like that you hold on to them at all costs maybe even overpay them a little bit just to yep. keep them around trying to figure out how to intrinsically motivate a, a room full of fighter pilots or a room full of professional athletes since intrinsic motivation comes from all sorts of different ways, right? You found a lot of that internal motivation when you talk to him. Everybody shows up with this extrinsic. Hey, yeah. I don't want either. I either don't want to get cut, or I want to win for the team. Those are the easy ones, right? When you show up at a team, you go, oh, "I want to win for the team," right? Okay. But but what really, when you look in the mirror, what's really driving you? And for for lots of people, it's different. And and, and this was your opportunity to develop that intrinsic motivation to perform and want to do well. And he brought that out in a 15 second exchange. Which yeah. is amazing that leaders can do that. They, they really can. And it's awesome. So it's funny that you bring that up because I remember being in one of our economics classes and he brought that up like intrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. It's like, well, what motivates people? Yep. And if you kind of bring that back to what we're doing, um, as like youth hockey coaches, um, I feel like the one of the biggest pieces that's missing in youth hockey is how can you get kids to be intrinsically motivated? Right. And if you look in the realm of goalie coaching, why was I able to go from having no goalie coaching to playing professionally, playing eight years? after college, like how was I able to do that? And it was strictly because I was intrinsically motivated. Like I loved yes. it. Like my parents never forced it on me, even though my dad nudged me to be a goalie, he never forced me to be a goalie. He was just like, Hey, if you're going to do this, like this is the position you're going to have to play type thing. But like, I loved it. I loved the challenge of it. So when like things got hard, like I never folded. So when I hear that conversation, through the coach's door, yeah. right? It doesn't like pull me back. I'm like, I quit. It's like, no, it made me harder. You know what I mean? So like when I'm number six on the depth chart, and I'm flying around, like, and my mom's telling me like, I can quit. Like, no, like it makes you harder and you keep going and you're not playing for another eight years. So it's like, when we're dealing with these kids, I feel like the biggest piece that coaches miss on is simply getting them to love the game as much as they can. Well, I'll rewind a little bit because I, I, it's no, it's profound because I think, like you said, and I, this may be a total shot in the dark. You guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like anybody can get clinics and, and as a coach can go to clinics and learn the technical aspects of goaltending and teach it to a kid. Yes. And go, hey, this is, this is how you move across the, the crease. This is how you, how you work your pads into the butterfly, all that stuff. I feel like any non-goalie can do that. But what the goalie that has goalie experience can do is teach that other stuff. We talked about athleticism, but the mental side of how to react to game situations and how to react to those intrinsic motivation things, you wouldn't know it unless you were there. You wouldn't know it unless you went through it. So to me, putting a guy a step above goes past the technical stuff and it goes to the mental side of stuff. And so, yeah, I'm trying to tie it back to our overall thesis of this podcast. But, but frankly, I, I really think that's the difference maker is those things. See, like 
I think like for our business, what we do, and I think we actually probably can do this better than most people do is we don't get bogged down on the technical side of things. We teach it for sure, but we don't get bogged down on it because we know that we can teach that whenever we want. We can add that to your game. Like if you give me a goalie who's never played, whether it's adult, a little kid, whoever it may be, you give me a month of skating consistently, I will make you a technically sound goalie. We'll get you dialed in. But I think our number one goal, especially when we work with the little guys, is like we want them to be so in love with playing goalie that they just literally leave with a smile on their face. It's all they think about. It's all they want to do. Because guess what? If they do that later on, now we got them and now we can coach them. And now they're not only going to get better on their own, but we're going to make them better. And then when things get hard and they get cut or whatever may happen to them, we can relate to them because we know what they're going through. And they're just going to be so they're going to have that eternal motivation where they're just not going to stop. And they're just going to love it more than the next guy to keep going. And like, if you look at my experience or even Mac, your experience getting mono, like you didn't quit after that year, you came back the next year and you probably had the best year of your college career. And that springboarded you into pro hockey where now it's like you took those tools you learned and you're like, huh, all right, well, I've already been through the ringer with that. The rest should be easy. So now no matter what gets thrown at you, you can handle it. You know what I mean? No matter what it is, if it's a life thing, if it's a goalie thing, like I feel like personally, there's nothing I can't handle right now mentally, or at least wrap my head around it where I can come out on the other side, you know, and it's like, it almost becomes a teaching moment, Uh, you know? It's funny you mentioned that because I could take anybody that can fly a Cessna and teach them to fly a fighter jet. It's easy. Yep. It's super easy. Get in. I mean, you pull back on the stick, the houses get smaller, you push forward, the houses get bigger. You got tons of power. Your left hand controls how fast you go. It's a piece of cake. It's an easy airplane to fly. Because when we're trying to execute tactics and integrate into a formation of four or eight airplanes, I can't think about the stick and rudder flying pieces of this. I don't have the brain bites. So the airplane has to be really inherently very easy to fly. So if you and I just wanted to go fly around the flagpole, piece of cake. Now incorporate you into a, into a formation and use the airplane as a weapon system. That's where it gets, that's where, it gets, yeah. that's where the sport comes in. Right. So just like you said, I can teach the technical stuff of manipulating the airplane to anybody. It's now doing all the other stuff. And it's really where the mental side of things comes in. It's what is your motivations? You know, why are you feeling the things you're feeling and how does all that affect your performance? And that's what puts people a cut above, I think. And so you go, you, you know, you, I don't want to overskip. I don't want to overshadow or skip this part of your story, but you play one game for the New York Rangers, and then you go to Italy and play for, for play Bolzano, and you play in Vienna, and, yep. and the business side of the game sort of leaves, I think, and you you kind of hang it out there and you start loving the game and having an amazing experience in Europe. Yeah, and I all mean, all that culminates in working now with with kids, right? Yeah. Like, I think my last year in, um, in Hartford, it was just, it was no fun. Um, got hurt early was just one of those situations where, um, the other goalie 
took advantage of his situation and he played really well. And I mean, it's one of those things where you get hurt, you lose your job essentially, but now you're coming back and you're, 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 um, you're pressing, right? Cause you're like, now it's like, oh my God, like I've worked so hard to get to this spot. Like I'm number three and now I'm hurt and this guy's bypassing me. Now I'm pressing and mentally I'm not in a good place. I'm like chasing the game. It's no fun. And I do think there's sometimes when you're playing hockey, you just need the year to end. And that was a year I just needed to end. Like it was not going to go my way no matter what. I just needed to stop, reset, get into the summer and refocus. Well, unfortunately in pro sports, if you don't have a contract and that happens, you're probably done. <laughs> so I remember just sitting around and, um, with one of my good friends in, in Hartford and we were just having a couple beers and I was humming and hawing. and I didn't really have any, um, contracts. It was either I'm going back to the East coast league or I'm going to sign with Balzano in Italy, which, um, all due respect isn't like the best league in Europe to be playing at the time for sure. And I remember my goalie coach was like, well, what other options do you have? I was like, well, I don't. And he's like, so, and he was always blunt with me and I actually really appreciate that about him. And he's like, well, then the choice is pretty simple. And I was like, yeah, it is. So I remember I called the team in Balsano. I was like, yeah, man. And I was very lucky to have two older North American guys who had been, um, been over in Europe for a long time. And one of the first things they said to me, was just Matt, anything or any expectations you have about pro hockey and the way you were treated in North America, throw them out the window because this is completely different. Just little things like you have to bring your own towel or you got to bring your own soap, like stuff like that, that you seem is so like minuscule, but you don't have that anymore. And it would drive a lot of the North Americans crazy that they didn't have that. And in the grad scheme of things, it's like, dude, who cares? Just like, grab your own towel, man. Like it's not that big of a deal. Um, a lot of guys couldn't handle it. Um, that was the first time once I got to Europe and I kind of like wrapped my head around things that I was like, all right, this is where I'm at again. This is either going one or two ways. I'm in probably one of the worst leagues in Europe. If I have a bad year, my career is done for sure. I'm not even going to be coming back to Italy. If I have a good year, maybe I'll get a contract in a better league, maybe, but at least I know I'll be able to come back here, you know, and I was already at the top of the budget. So I knew I wasn't going to be making anymore. It wasn't like, oh, if I have this great year, I'm going to make a hundred thousand this year. And next year I'm making 400. It was like, no, you're going to stay exactly where you are. Cause that's all we can afford to pay a guy. And I just remember being like, all right, well, if I'm going to be here and be in this league, I was like, I'm going to be the Henrik Lundqvist of the Italian Hockey League. And I crushed it. I jumped into the culture full time. Like all my best friends on the teams were all the Italian guys. I hung out with the imports too, but I would spend as much time with the locals as I could. Because um, I think that's another mistake that imports make is they don't jump in 
Um, they don't get to know the culture. They just kind of stick to themselves. Well, I just went complete opposite. Like I was at happy hours with the Italians and no one would speak English, but I didn't care. I was just there with them, um, hanging out. So I got to know the local people and I was around and it was just like, for me, it was like a life changing experience. Just like being in a different culture like that. It was awesome. But that was probably the first time too. Like I felt like a bigger purpose as far as like, all right, like I'm back to more of that college mentality where it's like, I'm here, there's no training camp. I'm on the team. You know, this is where I'm going to be. Um, this is my home. Let's just kill it. And we did. We, our first year, we had a great year. Uh, the second year we won the championship when we probably shouldn't have. And yeah, that springboarded me to Vienna, but I, I was very like leaving Balzano was very sad in a lot of ways. Cause I loved it there. I loved the guys. The teammates were awesome. They were some of my best friends, um, the city, the culture, everything about it. Like I thought that was a place I could live the rest of my life. It's easy to find a home in Italy. Yeah. It's cool yeah. Place. And I still go back there. Like if I'm going to go on uh, a trip to Europe, like that's my first choice. Um, for sure. We loved it. I loved everything about it. Um, and I can't say anything. I think any person should have, should have to go through something like that where, um, they have to live in a foreign culture or country, even just for a year, because it does humble you. It does change your whole perspective on life. Um, I would go days where I wouldn't speak any English until I got to the rink. So all day, like, no English at the grocery store. Um, and then you figure out how to communicate people and then you start picking up the language. Um, and it was, it was just awesome. I loved it. That's cool. So, so you go to Vienna, what's the difference in the experience there to Bolzano? Um, Do you still find those roots? I feel like you've come back to this a couple of times. I feel like your best days are when you feel at home with the team, when you feel that sense of, pride in that and that kind of that those roots sort of feelings right yeah because i would say for me like i was never motivated by like money necessarily you know what i mean whereas like yeah i want to get paid as much as i can but like that's not why i necessarily wanted to do it you know like i always want to do it because like i really enjoyed who i was with enjoyed who enjoyed who i was around um, for always having like a greater purpose for the whole thing, right? Like if I felt like valued and a part of it, I feel like that's always when I played my best. So I think for me, Vienna was, it was a, it was kind of like a new challenge because it was a better league. We were playing in the champions league. It was a big city, um, more crowds, new experience just in general. So I think that was more of um that was more of a situation where i need to show that i could still play to myself you know what i mean i was like all right like my european career or my north american career kind of ended a certain way where i was like i didn't really feel like not that i was disappointed with it but i knew that i had a bad year at a bad time and it was just kind of like hey this is just the business like there's nothing you can do so going to italy was like all right, this is where I'm at. I need to play well. Going to Vienna was more like a personal thing that I felt um, a big responsibility to play well so that other guys who go to Italy would be able to get out of that league as well. Because basically that summer, um, 
when I was talking to this, uh, he would have been like the GM or the player personnel guy for Vienna. I had my interview with him. And the first question he asked me, he was like, all right, Matt, well, why you had a great year, your first year in Bolzano? Why do you think no one wanted to sign you? I just told him straight out, well, there was a goalie the year before, Adam Dennis. I don't know if you guys remember him. He played um, in Buffalo's farm system in, in um, uh, Portland at the time. He went to Italy the year before I did. He had a fantastic year. He signed in the top German league, which would have been a huge deal. And he got fired pretty much a month into the season. So I was like, and this happened when I was already in Italy. And I was thinking, well, if Adam can like sign from Italy and go to Germany, I'll be able to get out of here. So he ends up sucking. And I was like, oh God, that is not good for me. So anyway, I'm on this interview with a player personnel guy for Vienna Burned. And he's like, why don't you think you haven't got out of Italy after your first year? You had a great year. And I was like, because Adam Dennis went to Germany and he stunk. So now everyone thinks that that's going to happen as well. Because I was like, hey, I was like, I know the league isn't good. I was like, I get that. I was like, I also just put up a 954, which I don't care what league you're in. That's hard to do. But I was like, that's why. I was like, I know it's why. And I was like, I'm fine with that. But I was like, I can tell you this. Like, you can go sign somebody else, and maybe he's a bigger name or anything like that. But I was like, they're not going to care as much as I am. So, and he's like, well, would you come on a tryout? And I was like, absolutely not. I will not come on a tryout. <laughs> I was like, if you want me, I'll be there, and this will be the best signing you have. But I was like, I will not come on a tryout. And uh, he's like, all right. So they ended up signing me and I come in and after like the first month, it was more of like, all right, now I have to prove to these guys that they took a chance on me from that league that I need to play really well. But I also needed to do it for the Italian guys who, if they had to go to that league, they need to look at me and be like, well, Zab's knocked us out of the park so I can move on out of this league too. Um, and we did because with yeah within the first month everyone's like dude what were you doing in that league i was like yeah it was just starting point for me you know what i mean like stuff like that i was like bad year bet wrong time um it is what it is um so yeah i think that was just another situation where i felt this huge um huge connection to that league and them giving me a chance and giving me a home that i kind of owed it to them um, to play well, and then obviously Oda to Vienna for taking a chance on me over maybe taking some more high-profile guys that they could have. Did you find the culture in the European leagues that you played in um, similar? Like, was Italy the same as Austria? Was it, you know, in comparison to the North American side of the business? Like, what I know? found it to be a lot more like college. So when you sign your contract with them, the only guys that are there for training camp are the guys who are on the team. So you fly over, you're right away in your apartment, you're settling in, you're meeting your teammates. There's no getting sent down. Like, yes, you can get fired and then you're like, Hey, we're buying you out of your contract. But for me, that was always on the player. Right? So right away, I just felt like you're home. You're there. Like, this is where I'm going to be. So there's no like, oh my God, like I could get sent down to the HL or oh, I, I'm going down to the East Coast. Like, it was just, you're there. 
So your mind is clear just to play. And that's always for me when I was at my best, when it was like, hey, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just taking care of my stuff on the ice. I know where I'm going to be for the year. And I could just settle into kind of my routine and go. Um, and that's what I loved about it. Like I thought my time in the Ranger system, probably after halfway through my first year when I kind of figured it out to my next year, when which was awesome, to uh, my third year, it was just like, even though I was playing, like I still never felt like this is where I was kind of going to end up. You know what I mean by that? Where I was just like, I was doing it more for me, which was fine, but that's not where I ever enjoyed playing. Like I really enjoyed like the team aspect of it where it's like the, the whole like greater good, that type stuff. Right. So like, I think no matter what in North America, I probably would have always been a little bit unfulfilled in some ways. And to be honest, a lot of the reason why I stopped playing wasn't because I wasn't doing well. Like we went to, I think in my five years in Europe, I went to three league championships. We were like rolling. I was the most successful goalie in Vienna Capitals history. I was the only goalie that before I got there, they changed goalies every year. I was like the first time a guy had ever been there for more than a year, which was crazy. Um, but I think a lot of the reason why I stopped playing is because I didn't want to live anywhere else after having that experience. It wasn't because of hockey. It was because um, I wasn't going back to Vienna. I was getting hip surgery and I knew they weren't going to redo my contract, which to be honest, I was completely fine with. Like I was at peace with, and I just remember like I knew that was happening and I was like, all right, this is my last year. I'm not living anywhere else. Like, this is the last team I actually want to play for. So it's like, if I get to have that choice, like I'm really good with it. Like, I don't want to just play and bounce around these other European leagues just to keep going. I was like, I want Vienna to be the last spot and kind of make it on my own terms too. You know what I mean? So it was like, I loved it. I loved everything about Europe. Uh, I loved Vienna. I would have go back there too in a second. I still talked to the GM um, I had a great meeting with him when I left. I remember, um, I had had my surgery and I was the last guy there and my apartment was right behind the rink. And normally it would take me walking two minutes to get to the GM's office. And he calls, he's like, Hey, I know your flights tomorrow. Like let's meet, let's meet and grab coffee. Just come to my office. I was like, all right. It took me 45 minutes to get there on these crutches. <laughs> I was like in a full sweat hobbling, but I go and meet Franz and we just had this awesome talk. Like the whole time it wasn't even about like hockey or life. It was just, I think for him, I think he like really appreciated the way I like handled it. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's a tough one to talk yeah. about. You got me welling up over here. Now. <laughs> and I, it's all good, man. It's, yeah. it's all good. But no, because like when I went in there, he was essentially, he knew the fans really liked me. And he was going to take a lot of heat for that. Yeah. 
but I pretty much gave him the statement that was like, Hey man, like it's good. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not going to be back. I can't play anymore. My hips, but like, I love you. And he was like, Hey, I really appreciate you doing this. Your, your ability to go out, to go out on your terms and to leave the game that the three of us and many, many others love is, is a, is a gift. I mean, that's, that's a gift, man, for you to be able to, to have that experience to have you go out like that and, and not have it be one of the other ways that players and goalies especially can, can exit the game. And so, yeah, that was, I mean, for me, that was a way to go out. And like, I've never really talked about that conversation with anybody, but like, yeah, that was very much like with front. It was like, Oh, he's like, Zabs, this is going to be really bad for me. I was like, I know this is going to be really bad for you. So this is also really bad for me. But I think we kind of had this understanding that was like, look, like it kind of had to happen. Like I wasn't going to be ready in a perfect world. I probably would have been back. But I think like I wasn't going to be ready for that. that was a way for him to kind of get closure as far yeah. as like, thank you for doing a solid for me too. And I was like, yeah, I, I always wanted to leave there on good terms because they did so much for me. Um, not only as like a hockey, but as a person. So I think that was just like the perfect, like type of ending where I think I get emotional on that part too, because I knew that part of my life was over in that moment. Right. Like when I got on that flight, leave in Vienna, that was probably one of the hardest things to do as a person, because I knew I would probably never be back there in any capacity. You know what I mean? As far as like, Hey, I'll go back and visit, but like this part of my life is like over completely. So I'm like, and I'm by myself just like flying back to North America, not knowing, like knowing like hockey's over, knowing Europe's over, knowing like we're starting this next piece of life. And that is like, that hits you hard there. I remember, I think I cried that whole flight back, not necessarily because like hockey was over, but because I knew like, wow, like life is changing drastically now. Yeah. It's intimidating. It's intimidating for, for sure. Oh yeah. I think what's, you know, incredible about your story and, and the journey that you've talked about so far is the fact that, you know, you, you mentioned the human side of Chris Drury, you know, and, and you talk about the family of Colorado college and the family of the European organizations that you were able to be a part of and just how important and critical that was to you wanting to be all in on all of those. And it's such a good thing to hear for any leader or any organization that if you can get people to this point and make them feel a part of something that it's it it mean it means the world. I feel like you can just get so much more out of people if you can create that type of culture, yes. right? And you know, and and that's that's the tricky part about once you retire from being a part of something, whether that's the Air Force, the professional hockey, is that it feels like you're kind of going out into the next step, and you're like, will I ever find that again? Am I going out on my own to do my own thing, or am I am I jumping into a company to work for? Do they will they have the same culture? You know, and, and in most instances, probably not. But ultimately, I think that should be the end goal for any organization or any business. 
you know, you're trying to find a way to, to make people feel a part of something. Right. And that's, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's true. It's heavy stuff, but <laughs> it's, I don't know if I've, I think I might have cried on the pod once so far. Yeah. <laughs> you make me get a tear got coming down guys. my cheek. So. I'm an emotional guy. I'll wear my heart on my sleeve for sure. But I think that for me is like, I don't really talk about that stuff much. I don't like to talk about myself. I don't really talk about my playing career. Um, but yeah, Vienna was an emotional spot for me. It was like that when I think about that place, like I pretty much tear up almost every time just for the way they treated me. Um, just for the experience I had, like I literally, most people, when I retired, they, I got calls from all my teammates. Like I was 32 years old. I was probably at the top of my game in a lot of ways. And they were like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you're killing it still. Like you're, 920 every year like we're at the finals all the time like what are you doing and it was like literally the reason i didn't want to keep playing not because is because i didn't want to play anywhere else besides vienna <laughs> it was like that was it i was like hey i'm not going back to europe if i'm not in vienna like yeah i could stay in the league but it's not vienna i'd rather just start the next part of my life like that's how much that place meant to me um that's where you wanted to. That's, that's where you wanted I to close wanted it out. And it, I didn't want to put on any other jersey. Like I wanted to end this as a awesome. capital. And yeah, I still talk to Franz, the GM, all the awesome. time. He's he's the man, and he takes a lot of flack. But I think um, when you're in those positions as like a GM and um, you're controlling teams and stuff like that. It's very easy to get um, to take the emotion out of everything and forget about dealing with people. But like for for him and myself, I always felt that there was um, a little bit more of a connection than maybe some of the other guys as far as um, how he could relate to I me. Mean, I think a lot of that had to do with like I put myself out there. I had a German tutor my last year. I was out at anything they needed. I was in the city. I was hanging out with all the Austrian guys. So I think they looked at me as a little different. I remember my first year going over there. I went over like two weeks early and all the imports like, dude, why are you going over so early? I was like, yeah, man, like I want to see the city before this thing starts. Like I want to take advantage of this. And it was like the GM and everyone was like, what is this guy about? But then I think they just kind of got to know him. Like, oh, he's a little bit different. Like, he loves it over here. I would have lived over there, like, the whole summer. I wouldn't even went home. It was just, it was great, everything about it. So, so Zabs, how are we doing on time? I, I know you mentioned you got a little bit of time. I think we got a little okay. bit more. They're not texting me, telling me to hurry up or anything. All so right. we got some flexibility. So, uh, first thing, brother, thanks. Thanks for, for sharing all this. I, yeah. I know you're, you're a humble guy, and and I don't know you that well, but I know you through Curtis and talked to you a few times. And But sharing this stuff is hard, and, and I, 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 I can appreciate that you don't want to sit up here for an hour and 18 minutes talking about yourself, but the value that your stories bring to anybody that's going to listen to this pod is huge because it's a glimpse into understanding what the heck is going on inside somebody's head throughout a career like this. And, and, and so now I'll take it full circle, right? You take yep. this whole experience. And I wrote down a couple of things. Okay. I wrote down the chip, Max yep. Mono, yep. Chris Drury's leadership, <laughs> playing hockey for the love of the game. 
And the number five thing I wrote on here was now you're teaching the next generation. Yep. So you're influencing some pretty high level USHL goalies. Yep. You've uh, working on that, work on tri city stuff. And then, you know, your, your uh, mountain high hockey uh, school and, and, yep. and the goalie school you got going on. So I look at, at you as a person that probably throughout your career didn't receive a ton of formal coaching. And now you've become a formal coach. And yep. We talked a little bit about it throughout the pod, but, but now how do you incorporate all of those lessons and all those things into the way you teach new and future uh, rock stars? Well, I think the biggest thing, and we touched on it earlier, is just having our goalies learn to love the game themselves is probably one of the biggest things I think that will be the separator. And it's something that I don't know if you can necessarily quantify it. You can't really, you can see it, but it's not something like technical. You're coaching. You know what I mean? So I feel like if we can help the kids fall in love with the game on their own terms, they're going to work harder at it. They're going to strive to get better at it. They're going to find more information on it. Um, they're just going to work harder at their craft when it does get harder and the pyramid gets smaller, um, opportunities get less. Um, they are going to have that attitude where they're just going to stick with it. Cause I think any time someone comes through our door, right? You, you have to get to know the reason why they're in there. And there's usually it's parent driven. It's kid driven. Or maybe they don't even know why they're in there, but there's usually parent driven or the kids are driving the bus, right? So if the kids in there because their parents are bringing them, like you can tell right away, you know, because the parents are like, they want to be involved in their lesson. They're almost like coaching as well. So you have to take all these things into account. So now you understand that dynamic where it's like, all right, this kid's probably getting a lot of pressure at home he probably has a different relationship with the game or the position than the kid who's just like frothing at the mouth, begging his parents to come in. Right. So I think you have to learn their why and it might not even be their own why, but you have to figure that out and you have to figure it out quickly. Cause that's all going to be how you approach how you're going to coach them. So for instance, if, a parent comes in and he's super hard on their kid. He's pressuring them. I know that I need to make this thing fun for him because he's probably not having fun with it the other way because he's thinking, Oh, if I let this in or if I don't do a good rep or whatever it is, I'm going to hear about it or my dad. And a lot of that you can kind of sense through the body language or just if they're making eye contact with the parents and that might be involved like calling out the parent. Like if we're doing a drill and I see the kid glancing over at mom and dad all the time, it just like literally been like, Hey, I'm over here. I don't care who's over there. You're not looking at them. This is between like me and you. And you take the parent out of the equation a little bit. Right. And just make this about like, Hey, how we're doing things. And then you can like make them smile and love it. And you can see their whole demeanor change. And then you have the kids who just like intrinsically love everything about it. Like they're running through the door screaming, Zabs, what's up? Let's go. And they are just dialed in the whole time. You know, they love it. So you can give them a little bit more. You can push them 
a little bit more on certain things. Um, but if you're not figuring that piece out, you're not going to have any success. And I think that's where the playing piece comes into it. Like, I don't think you have to have played at a super high level to be a really good coach, but I think you need to be in tune with people and how they're emotionally feeling. Like there'll be times where kids come in, they're older, maybe their girlfriend broke up with them. Maybe they have something going on at home where a dog dies or mom or dad are sick, whatever it is. And they're not going to have their best days. Like you need to find ways to figure out what's going on. And that's by asking questions and having them feel comfortable um, being around you. You're almost like creating a safe space for these kids to come in and you're part goalie coach, you're part therapist, um, but them just wanting to be around you feeling comfortable so that when you do have to pile it on or bring on information or be hard on them, like they know they're coming, you're coming at it from the right place is I think the ultimate goal. Dave, I think you might be on mute there. There you go. You're back. You're uh, you're not just a coach. You're a leader. And uh, <laughs> the best leaders that I've ever worked for, the ones with uh, ridiculously high emotional intelligence. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, like when a kid walks through the door, you're looking for their body language. You're kind of trying to see the interaction with the parents, whatever it may be. The first question is just like, hey, man, how's your day going? And then usually you could figure it out pretty quickly how if it's going well, going bad, just asking them questions. So it becomes more of a conversation between you and them as opposed to I'm just coaching you for the hour um, type thing. A lot of the best coaching we've probably done is has nothing to do with with goaltending i mean i remember one of the first goalies we worked with um the parents wrote me this long letter basically saying like hey we didn't know if he was going to play next year he wasn't having fun um but then you started coming to their practices and you guys just talk clash of clans the whole time because the kid was seven and he didn't really like necessarily like hockey and his coach would yell at him all the time and his confidence was low and yeah we would go do his goalie stuff and we wouldn't even talk about goaltending we'd talk about I was like, hey, man, what, what video games are you playing? He's like, oh, I play Clash of Clans on my iPhone. And I was like, oh, I play that too. And then we just started talking about our, our clans and all these other things. And it wasn't even about goaltending. Next thing, he's smiling. Next thing, he's asking his parents to come to hockey practice because he wants to see his coach who's talking about this. Now he loves it. You know what I mean? It's just like those things that have nothing to do with hockey. It's just, yeah, it's all the personal element of it that you got to hit on. And that's how you get the buy-in too, right? Yeah. Like we've had a lot of success, I would say, with the Tri-City guys in the last few years. And I don't know if I've taught those guys a thing technically at all. You know what I mean? It's just, it's about getting them in a good headspace, making sure they feel good about themselves, making sure they like love it and want to be there. You know, it's just, it's not really, I mean, it's about the co the goalie coaching, but a lot of it is not in a lot of ways, you know? And that's where I do feel like it gets lost. Like I always played my best when I was in the best headspace, when I felt like very motivated for whatever reason. 
And a lot of that was just, yeah, how I was feeling on a day-to-day basis, what was going on between the ears, you know? And everybody's got different reasons for, for yeah. feeling that motivation. And, and, um, and obviously you found it in a couple of key points throughout your, your road, your path, and that's where you perform the best. So that's uh, really profound. I mean, it's super interesting to get in touch with that stuff and talk about it. So again, thanks for sharing all that. Yeah, no. And I think when you deal with the kids, it's like, everyone thinks it's about, um, well, my kids play college or my kids play pro. I want to play, I want to train the best kids. I want to create all these elite NHL goalies. Well, what if the goal is just to make your goalies love it more than the next guys? So when it does get harder, our guys are still going to be playing and yours might be quitting. Like, I think the biggest success we could have as like a goalie company is not necessarily how far they've made it. It's, are they still playing when they're 40? Are they still playing when they're 50? I think that's how you know you've done a really good job. You know what I mean? I do. It's like, are they still playing? Are they playing men's league? Or did they just stop after high school? That's a great yeah. point. That's true. Yeah. Like, do, they hate, just, do, they, do they actually begin, do they, do they learn to resent the game to a point where they don't even want to be a part of it anymore? And if yeah, that happens, and, yeah, what you was see it all for? Yeah, you see that with kids all the time with uh, with parents who are super hard on their kids and the kids talented. And, you know, it's that feeling that they'll never be good enough. It's like, well, I could make the NHL, but I'm just never good enough for whatever reason, right? Um, where if you just sit back and be dad or be mom and just enjoy the ride – you're not only going to have a better connection with your kids, you're also going to have way more fun with the game and just love the game and the experience way more. Um, For sure. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to the whole thing, but I think that's like with my parents, they never had any expectations for me to play. Like getting a college scholarship for them was like the greatest thing in the world not because of like hockey or anything like that. Or for me personally, it was because they could a lot more money to my sisters for their school. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was their bonus. It wasn't like, Oh yeah, Matt's going to school. This is great. He's got school and paid for it. It's like, all right, we got more money for, uh, for my three sisters to go to their school. You know what I mean? It wasn't like anything else. That's awesome. It was just like, wow, this is a great bonus, you know? Um, and I think that's probably why, like, I just, yeah, I, I always stuck with it is because they never put any pressure on me to keep going. Like my mom, she could have cared less about it. You know, my dad maybe cared a little bit more, but like, yeah, my mom could have cared less if I would have quit in high school. Yeah. To her, you were just doing something that you loved. Yeah, I was she just knew like, that hey, she just wanted them. to support it. Exactly. She's like, yeah, keeps them out of trouble, keeps them productive. But like, yeah, at the end of the day, she could have cared less. I like the subtle nudge, though. Just ask you. Oh, you yeah. can just come home. Yeah, no, yeah just, exactly. Just kind of like motivate yeah. you a little bit. Like, exactly. Are you sure you want to come home? She knew. She knew like how to push those buttons. It's like, what? Yeah. It's like, no, I'm not just coming home. What are you talking about? Call me a yeah. quitter. <laughs> so, so Zabs, I think we're, we're, we're about out of time, brother. But, but for those of you listening, 
that haven't had the opportunity to jump on Instagram and check out <laughs> MHH Goalie Club, uh, I'd encourage all of you to follow that page. Whether you're interested in learning how to become a better goalie or you want to just see some funny videos and some funny content, uh, check it out. Because Zabs, you got these these blue skates that you strap yeah. on. Are those things still hanging pretty good, by the way? Yeah, they're hanging on. I mean, okay. we have to mod them a little bit, but we like to have fun on there. We obviously, yeah. um, I think we have uh, a lot of good information. We like to obviously keep it light. We yes. also like to hit you guys with some coaching stuff. But I think it's just another situation where we want the audience and the people following to see that we just love being goalies. That's exactly it. At the end of the day, if that's the message we're portraying and we want people to see, it's like, these guys just love it. And to be honest, we've had a lot of men's league and adult league goalies reach out now about skating because they yeah. see we're doing it. Yeah. It's a very, I think we create a very unthreatening um, environment for people who want to get better. I think there's a lot of when you sign up for private lessons, there is an intimidation piece that some people may have as far as like, well, what's this coach going to be like? Am I going to be yelled at? Oh, I'm just not very good. Like, is he going to be judgmental of me or whatever it is? I think we just take all those barriers away Definitely. with how we approach it. And we make it a very inviting, friendly place where we don't care if you're an NCAA Division One goalie, a pro goalie, or a men's league guy that just started skating. We'll work with all of you, and we're going to treat you the same, and you're going to have the same experience no matter what. And I think that's exactly how we want it to be. Well, I want to get up there and skate with you guys, but again, MHH Goalie Club follows Zabs and Curtis. Uh, really awesome. Curtis, uh, any, any parting shots for uh, Zabs before we wrap it up? <laughs> Oh, I mean, that was fantastic. It, your journey is incredible, but I think what's even more powerful is just hearing you talk about uh, coaching youth and and kind of your insight into interacting with kids and adult league goalies and whoever whoever that may be. Um, it, I don't know. It's just it's powerful stuff to hear you talk about it, and I I think it just kind of you know it motivates me personally to kind of you know it just gives me energy hearing you talk about it. So. Um, thank you for sharing the story. I mean, the career was incredible. What you're doing now is, is truly remarkable. And I think goalies in Colorado, um, they're, they're lucky to have you down in Denver right now. I know yeah, that for sure. And we're, I mean, we're killing it. I think it's a very, for most athletes, I think the hardest part, and you know, this Mac is figuring out what you're going to do after, you know, that's like a very scary thought. And I think um, being able to jump into something we've been doing um, our whole lives and being able to make a career out of that. And I think just ultimately when I personally started to where we are now, pretty much like two weeks away from like launching our new spot, I think the only thing you really think about is, and it's crazy, is like building something where you would wanted to skate personally growing up. And it's almost like bringing out that childhood back in you as far as like, this is exactly what I would have wanted to do at 12 years old. Like, this is where I would have wanted to skate. So for me, it's just like, it's come full circle between we talked that conversation in the sports store with my dad and then me going to skate with Craig. We're essentially just creating that same thing in Colorado. And it's been awesome. So we're very lucky to have you involved. 
Dave, we got to get you up at skating for sure. And yeah, we're just going to keep rolling and pushing the envelope. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate. It is intended for private, non-commercial use, and the views presented by your hosts or guests do not reflect on any agency, company, or organization that they work for.